Welcome to the Harmony Christian Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by today's message from Pastor Josh Shoemaker. Just to give you a quick review before we jump into uh, what, I've, what I have for you today, uh, we looked at Luke chapter 2, where Mary and Joseph have brought Jesus to the temple uh, so that they could do the, the rituals that they do there for all the newborns in Israel. So they bring Jesus into the temple. Now I want to point out that this was the first time in almost 600 years since 586 BC in almost 600 years that the presence of God was in the temple. The last time that it was in the temple was when the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God in the Old Testament, it's where the presence of God resided and it dwelt. The last time that presence was there was 586 BC when Babylon came in and took over Israel and destroyed the temple and the Ark of the Covenant went missing until about uh, the 80s when, when Indiana Jones found it. I thought I'd try the joke again. It didn't work last week, so I thought I'd go again. So the ark was missing. The presence of God was missing since 586 BC. And then Mary and Joseph walk into the temple and Malachi chapter three was fulfilled in that moment where it says suddenly he will walk into his tabernacle again. And for the first time in almost 600 years, the presence of God shows up in the tabernacle. Now, what's interesting about that is it wasn't the religious leaders who should have known it was him. It wasn't them who recognized it. There was no fanfare. There was no, no big uh, entrance. It was actually a very small, ins- almost seemingly insignificant thing that nobody in the temple noticed, not even the religious leaders who were looking for the Messiah noticed or saw that it was Jesus. Who was it that saw Jesus? There's two. And it was a common, two common people. The Bible says that they were residents of Israel. They're residents of Jerusalem. One of them was an elderly man named Simeon who was believing God. The Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and was believing God for the consolation of Israel. When Jesus walked in, Simon or Simeon immediately knew that this was the Messiah. A little bit later, after Simeon goes over, there's another lady who comes up who was also an elderly woman. Uh, the Bible doesn't, isn't really specific. It says that she, either she was 84 years old or she had been praying and fasting in the temple for 84 years. It's kind of hard to tell which one it is. So she, she could have been 84. She could have been in, in, her, in her almost 100 years old. But it, at any rate, this woman named Anna who was the daughter of Fenuel or Penuel or uh, yeah Fenuel Penuel in the in the Hebrew which means face to face with God it's the word for presence she was the daughter of presence who had given her life to fasting and praying in the temple night and day the bible says who was a widow these common people they were the only two who knew who it was who walked in the temple that day. They had eyes to see who Jesus was. There was no angelic visitation that told them who he was. The Bible doesn't record any any miracle that took place. 
Nobody told him who he was. They just had eyes to see that this little baby, this little newborn that walked in was the Messiah, was the one they had been waiting for. And this is what I feel like the Lord is saying to us this year. I believe he's raising up Simeon's that will be filled with the spirit to see Jesus. That seems like a, a very generic statement, but it's so powerful. He's raising up Simeon's that will be filled with the spirit to see Jesus. And what I mean by that is they're, they're filled with the spirit to see Jesus in places that nobody else can see him. When it's not obvious that he's there, they can see his presence and his hand in that place. So they'll be filled with the spirit to see Jesus and they will contend for his presence to come and bring change. I believe that's both in, in um, um, local areas, in their cities, in their churches. And I believe that he's raising up Simeon's to see the presence of God come and bring change to our nation. He's raising up Anna's who are born of presence. Those who have experienced his presence before in powerful ways that are willing to go and sit in places that are absent of his presence and pray and fast until his presence comes. That's a lot there. But man, they're Anna's who have experienced presence that are willing to go to places that are seemingly absence of presence and stay there and believe and pray and intercede and fast until presence shows up. And finally, the third thing here. In the story that we read there, the, the whole story ends after they go to the temple, after they encounter Simeon, after they encounter Anna. It says that Mary and Joseph take Jesus home. And that's pretty much all the scripture says is they take Jesus home. And from that time in the temple when Jesus was born until 30 years later when he begins his ministry, there's not a whole lot that's said about what happens other than, like I said, that, that one little time when Jesus was 12 years old and Mary and Joseph um, lose the son of God. Can you imagine that? Losing your own child's bad enough, but when you lose God's child, <laughs> oops. <laughs> but between, between the birth of Jesus in this moment here and 30, and 30 years later when he starts his ministry, there's not a whole lot given to us. All we know is that Mary and Joseph took him home. And the Bible says they hosted him. That Jesus lived in their house. He ate at their table. He, he, uh, they clothed. They gave him clothes. They gave him a place to sleep and to rest his head. They just hosted Jesus well. We don't know if, if there was any miracles that Jesus did when he was younger or not. The Bible doesn't tell us. All we know is that Mary and Joseph took him home and hosted him well. And so here's what else I believe. The third thing. I believe he is raising up houses of Joseph that will make his presence their only priority, that will do whatever it takes to host him well, who will say, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek. And so those are the things we talked about in much more detail last week. Uh, but those are the things I believe the Lord is doing. So today, I wanna talk a little bit more about this, a little bit more in detail. I want to talk about what it looks like to become a house of Joseph. What does it look like to become a house of Joseph? 
And I want to um, clarify this here in the beginning. I'm probably going to be kind of mixing a little bit, talking about here, times we spend here at the church together, and also personal places like, like your home and your workplaces and things like that. And so I'm probably going to be talking about those almost interchangeably. Um, and the reason is this, like we talked about last week, the temple is not this building. You are the temple. You are the place that hosts his presence. This building doesn't host his presence. It's nice. It's a great place to gather and it's an important place to be, but it's not the place that hosts and holds his presence. We are. Colossians, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? You are the temple of God. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give some practical ways to host his presence well. So that becoming a house of Joseph can go from a catchy prophetic word to a reality. I don't want it just to remain a catchy prophetic word here at the beginning of the year. Because it's January and we need a prophetic word to start the year, right? I don't want it to be some catchy catchphrase. I want it to become reality. So I want to talk this morning about what does it look like? What can it look like practically to host the presence of God? What does it look like to become a house of Joseph that hosts his presence well? So I have a couple things here for you this morning. Number one, y'all ready? Yeah, okay, cool. Mimi's ready. She's always ready up here on the front row. Number one. We build our lives around his presence. So here's what I mean by that. We build our lives around his presence. In the Old Testament, when they built the tabernacle of Moses, the 12 tribes of Israel, where they all set up their camp, was around the tabernacle. If you look at pictures of how their, tab or their, their camp was set up, you had the tabernacle in the middle, and then all 12 tribes built their camps and set up their camps around the tabernacle, giving us this picture here, that everything that they did revolved around his presence. Remember, the tabernacle hosted the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. So they literally built their house around presence. Their focus of their community the focus of their, their homes and everything they did was around, was built and centered around the presence of God. The presence of God literally became the center of their life. Everything they did, they did with the presence of God as the center. There's a man um, that lived in the 1600s. His name was Brother Lawrence. Now, I'm not sure, maybe some of you know, I don't know if his name was actually Brother or if everybody just called him Brother Lawrence, and that just is what they title it. But even if you look at some of the books that are out from him, it's not Eugene Lawrence, it's Brother Lawrence. So we got Brother Lawrence, um, who lived in the 1600s. Brother Lawrence um, had an encounter with God, a significant encounter with God when he was 18 years old, that, um, that completely changed his life forever. Soon after he had that encounter with God, he went and lived in a monastery in Paris. And while he was at the monastery in Paris, his main job was working in the kitchen. And so he would prepare meals, he would wash dish, dishes, uh, he would serve food. That was his primary role in the monastery. Now it's said of, of Brother Lawrence, well actually, let me say it like this. He, 
Lawrence uh, did a lot of writing. He wrote in a journal. Uh, he wrote a lot of letters to people. Um, all of those letters have been now compiled and uh, have put, been put into a book called Practicing the Presence of God. And so uh, in those letters and in those things, he begins to describe how he practically um, uh, centers his life around the presence of God. It's, it can be said, it was said of, of Lawrence that there was no difference between the times that he had in deep intercession and prayer in the sanctuary and the times that he had in the kitchen when he was washing the dishes. That, that his prayer life, that his life in the presence of God was no different from the sanctuary to the kitchen washing dishes. And so he wrote a lot about this to other people and word kind of began to get out about this man and his lifestyle and how it was revolutionizing his life. That, that, that this man who practiced the presence of God, who didn't just do it in the sanctuary, but also practiced the presence in the kitchen, that this, his life began to change and he was a man full of joy and full of power and authority. And people began to take notice and from all over the world would come to this monastery just to meet this man who can encounter the presence of God while scrubbing grease off of a plate. And in his writings and as he began to teach people how he did this, Lawrence, how do you encounter the presence of God while doing menial everyday tasks? How does, how does that work? He says this, he says that even while I'm washing dishes, here's what I do. I set my affection towards him. I set my affection towards the divine and I, 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 I rewire my mind to realize that the presence of God is available to me at all times. He just set, it's, it's that simple. He just set his affection upon Jesus and that in doing that and being cognitive of that and mindful of that, he was able to have the same experience washing dishes as he did in the sanctuary in deep prayer and worship. He practiced the presence of God and made it a priority and he set his heart and his mind on the divine. Amen. Amen. Bill Johnson has a quote. He says, we always release the reality of the world we are most aware of. Let me say that one more time. Listen close. We always release the reality of the world we are most aware of. So if while we're washing dishes, we're aware of the fact that washing dishes is no fun. <laughs> and we are aware of the distortion in our world. And we are aware of our own failures and sins. Guess which world we're releasing? But if we become more aware of his presence, which is always available, you know, the temple curtain was torn and we have access to the Holy of Holies at all times. His throne is always available to us. And if we are mindful of that world, that becomes the world we release. So Lawrence learned this. That, the rea that, that he began to release the reality of the presence of God in his world by simply becoming aware, being aware of his presence.
by simply being mindful of his presence. Amen. Here's one real, real practical thing I encourage you all to begin doing. Take five minute vacations. This is another uh, instruction uh, from Bill Johnson. Take five minute vacations. Here's what he says to do. Put your phone on silent. Don't, and, and, and I think this is important too. Don't make every interaction you have with God asking him for something. Being needy for something. Not that we don't ever ask. Obviously we ask. The Bible tells us we have not because we ask not. Right? So definitely, we want to continue to intercede for people. We want to continue to intercede for things, uh, situations. But don't make every interaction you have with him about needing something. You don't even have to say words in these five-minute vacations. Just recognize he is in you and thank him for it. Just set your affection upon him. Bill says it like this. He says, he says every night, even before he goes to sleep, he says before he goes to sleep, he lies in bed. He doesn't say a word. He just comes into the reality that, that the affection of the father is, is for him. And he just rests in his love. I think, I think practicing the presence of God, becoming, uh, making his presence a priority can be as simple as just slowing our lives down and setting our minds upon his presence. Just taking little five-minute vacations throughout the day to simply sit in his presence. Amen? Live with the mindset of a host rather than a consumer. Live with the mindset of a host rather than a consumer. That we are the temple. We are hosting his presence. We don't just consume from him. We also give to him our attention and our affection. I would say that even as we walk into the church building here, don't come with the attitude and the mindset of just being a consumer. Come with the mindset that I have a part in hosting the presence of God in this place. Somewhere along the way, our Sunday morning message, and when I say ours, I don't just mean harmonies. I mean our, our, our modern view of the church. Somewhere along the way, it's become revolved around the sermon. In the Old Testament, once again, they built their camp where? Around his presence. That the sermon's important, it's powerful, we honor the word of God and we need it desperately. But what if our focus and our priority shifted from just the sermon to hosting his presence? To hosting his presence. So we don't come to church just to consume. We come to host the presence of God and to honor him with all that we do. Amen. How do we become a house of Joseph? We shift our minds from, becoming, from being consumers to being hosts of his presence. How else do we become houses of Joseph? We make his presence the biggest deal always. We don't let his presence become familiar. We make it the biggest deal always. In Luke chapter 7, there's a story where a, a religious leader, a Jewish religious leader named Simon, invites Jesus and some others to his house for dinner. 
So Jesus goes to the house for dinner. He sits down at the table. He's reclining at the table. They're having small talk, having conversation. And, uh, and, and everything is familiar. Everything's nice. Everything's good. Then in walks a woman who everybody in the room knows who she is and knows what she's about. The Bible tells us that this woman was indeed a prostitute in the city. And she walks through the doors of Simon's house. And makes her way straight to the feet of Jesus. Of course, Simon begins freaking out because his reputation is at stake here, right? He's dining with these people in his home. Surely there's other religious leaders there, other friends there who know him well. He's got a reputation in the city to uphold. And now there's a prostitute in his house. It's a bad day, right? For a religious leader, yeah? How many of you would think uh, something less of me if, <laughs> if you drove by my house? And saw somebody that have a bad reputation walking, right? It wouldn't be good, right? So Simon's a little worried right here. This woman comes to Jesus' feet. Most of you know the story here. She begins weeping. The Bible says that her tears fall on Jesus' feet. And then she begins wiping his feet, cleaning his feet with her long hair. And this Bible tells us that as she's cleaning Jesus' feet, she's in that whole process, she's, she's constantly just kissing his feet over and over again. Then the Bible tells us that the whole atmosphere of the room changed because she took this expensive alabaster jar of perfume and broke the jar and poured the costly, expensive perfume over his head. Simon, like I said, is upset. So he's in his mind, the Bible tells us, he's thinking, if Jesus knew what type of woman this was, he wouldn't let her do this to him. If he was really a prophet, he wouldn't let her do this to them. And so Jesus, I won't go into the parable, he, he tells her a parable. Here's what's important about this verse for this morning. Jesus looks at Simon and he says, Simon, when I walked into your home, you didn't offer me any water to wash my feet. When I walked into your home, you didn't greet me with the customary kiss on the cheek that a host would greet his guest with. When, when I walked into the room, you didn't anoint my head with oil. But this woman has not ceased kissing my feet. This woman who didn't have any water or anything saw my feet were dirty. And so what did she do? She used what she had, which was her tears and her hair to clean my feet. She broke this expensive jar of perfume and she poured it on my head. What is Jesus saying here? She's, he's, he's saying, Simon, you've let my presence become common. That you didn't even treat me with the customary greetings that a normal Jewish host would greet their guests with. Because I have become so common to you. There's, you, you. You have allowed my presence to become normal. We can't allow his presence to become normal. We can't take for granted the fact that the Son of God the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who moved everything so that we could be with him. We cannot let the fact that he is in the room with us this morning become common. 
We can't allow the fact that we have been given the privilege to host his presence within ourselves to become common. It always has to be a big deal. It always has to be a big deal. How do we become a house of Joseph? We make his presence the biggest deal in the world. Amen. How do we become a house of Joseph? This last one, I think, has probably transformed my life more than any others here in these past several years. We have to learn in hosting his presence well. Let me, let me just read the sentence. One of the greatest trans, transformations I have had in learning to host his presence well is receiving from him the identity of Beloved. That we are beloved. That Jesus and the Father loved us so much that he gave his only son. That he loved us so much that he put on flesh and sacrificed himself on a cross. That while we were yet sinners, before we ever repented, before we had it even in our minds to repent, he went to the cross. Why? Because of his great love with which he loved us. I think the way that we become more aware of his presence, the way that we shift our mindset is stepping into our identity as beloved. John, the beloved, one of the disciples of Jesus, has kind of an interesting story. We uh, see John and his brother, um, James, uh, who are the sons of thunder, right? They're the sons of thunder. We see them at one point, they get the name sons of thunder because at one point they're with Jesus and uh, some people begin mocking him. And what do they, they do? They say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them, right? This is, this is John the beloved, right? Do you want me to call down fire? To and Jesus is like, um, no, John. <laughs> I don't want you to do that, right? Another instance we see John, we see John and James uh, and, and all of the disciples are vying for position, right? They all want the place of honor because in their mind, it's still all about government takeover. And so when Jesus finally takes over, they want to know who gets to sit second in command, right? And so, so in order to present this to Jesus, what do they do? They send their mom to talk to Jesus, they say, mommy, <laughs> go tell Jesus we want to sit at his right side, right? So, so James and John's mom goes and asks Jesus, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will there be a place for my sons to sit at, my right, at your right and at your left? And Jesus tells them, listen, guys, it's not about that, right? It's not up to me who sits on my right and left. And then Jesus goes on. But they're vying for position, right? They're vying for authority. They're calling down fire from heaven. This is James and John. Then we read about John at the Last Supper. And John is sitting next to Jesus. And in John, I'm sorry. Yeah, in John chapter 13, verse 23, we read this verse says, now there was leaning on Jesus's chest, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, at first, this short verse may seem insignificant. It doesn't seem like it maybe bears much weight to the story. It doesn't have a whole lot of significance. 
But apparently this moment had impacted John in a powerful way. Because later on in John chapter 21, verse 20, John, who wrote the gospel of John, writes or makes sure to point out uh, as he's talking about this, this particular story of the Last Supper and all the details, he points out that he was the disciple who laid his head on Jesus' chest. And this is significant because the book of John was written 50-some years after Jesus' resurrection. So even 50 years later, John still remembers this seemingly insignificant detail where he laid his head on Jesus' chest. Even the early church father, Irenaeus, wrote in 180 AD, when confirming John's authorship of the gospel, he writes this. He says, last of all, too, the disciple of the Lord who lent, lent, his, lent against his breast himself brought out the gospel while he was in Ephesus. So even in 180, Irenaeus, when he's describing John, how does he describe John? He describes him as a disciple who laid his head on Jesus's chest. So this little verse, this little chapter, this, or I'm sorry, this little sentence obviously had major implications for John. As you read the book of John, you'll notice there's a shift and how he begins to identify himself after this verse. That before this verse, he identifies himself as John the disciple, or John, one of the sons of thunder. After this verse, he titles himself, the one whom Jesus loved. The one whom Jesus loved. That there was something significant that happened when John laid his head on Jesus' chest. That when his ear was close enough to the heartbeat of Jesus, there was something that he heard and that he realized in that moment. And what that was, was the extreme love of the Father for him. In that moment, John came into the revelation of the love of the Father for John. And from that moment on, he didn't introduce himself as John, the disciple of Jesus. He didn't introduce himself as John the Apostle. He didn't even introduce himself by his own name. In his mind, his name was also insignificant. He was just the disciple whom Jesus loved. He thought, the most important thing about me is not my name or my title. The most important thing about me, the thing you need to know, is that I am the beloved of the Father. This man who just a while before had his mama trying to score him the second highest seat of honor won't even write his name in the, to the account. Whew. Holy cow. That before he was vying for a position of honor, a place of recognition and of majesty and authority, and now he won't even write his name into the account. He's just the one whom Jesus loved. And I believe we step in to hosting his presence well. When we don't think of ourselves as sinners in the hands of an angry God. When we don't think of ourselves as pastor or teacher or whatever else we want to title ourselves. 
But we can step into hosting his presence well when we realize that we aren't hosting a God who's angry at us, but we're hosting a God who loves us, whose affection is for us, who calls us beloved. The Bible tells us in John chapter 17 that he loves us with the same measure of love that he loves his son, Jesus that there is no difference in the amount of affection that he has for Jesus as he has for you. And when we can come into that identity and that revelation of beloved, it's a complete game changer. It's a complete game changer. This is the same John who wrote 1 John, which is the love book. He writes this in John, 1 John verse 4, uh, Chapter 4, verse 17 and 19, he says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we have boldness in the day of judgment. What does love do? It makes us bold. It makes us bold. That we would have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in the world. As he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. We love him because he first loved us. How do we become a house of Joseph? I believe we become a house of Joseph by stepping into our identity as beloved. And when we set our affection upon him, we're not just setting our affection upon him, but we realize that he is setting his affection upon us. And when there's that mutual exchange of, of affection and love for one another, hosting his presence becomes the easiest thing in the world. Let's go ahead and stand together. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I, I pray that your presence would become more of a reality for us. God, that it wouldn't be a concept it wouldn't be a phrase that we use, but God, that it would be a reality. God, that we would sense your manifest presence in our lives. God, both here in this church and in our homes, Jesus. Father, that we would host your presence as we're driving combines and tractors. God, that we would host your presence as we're coaching Little League. God, that we would host your presence as we're teaching class. God, that we would host your presence as we're washing dishes. Father, that, that we would not have sacred moments and secular moments, but all of our life would be sacred. That there is no difference between the sacred and the secular when our hearts and our minds are focused and set upon you. God, let our lives be centered around your presence, Jesus. You know, one thing I've had desired of the Lord, that doesn't mean that we only do one thing. It doesn't mean that we sit in our rooms with the door shut, on our knees, praying and worshiping 24-7. What that means is one thing I've had desired of the Lord. What that means is that everything we do becomes about the one thing. Not that we only do one thing, but everything we do becomes about the one thing. So, Father, in every area of our life, we say yes to hosting your presence, to setting our minds and our hearts upon you. 
God, teach us how to practice the presence of God and to walk in it daily, to host you well, to become the temple of God that you have created us to be. Father, we love you today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more messages like this or information about our church, please visit harmonychurchfamily.org.